Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. It's Friday, October 9th. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Here's how we're making you smarter today. What the presidential campaigns are thinking about the next debate. Plus, a new record for sports betting. But first, a plan to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer could be an early warning of future violence. That's today's one big thing. Yesterday, six men were charged in a domestic terrorism plot targeting Governor Whitmer. When I first heard the news, I thought of a professor I'd met earlier this year when I was doing a fellowship at the University of Michigan. I said last year, and people didn't always believe me, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Alexandra Ministern studies white nationalists and white supremacist groups, including the Proud Boys. I could have never imagined that there would have been actually a plot to kidnap the governor of my state. But I could imagine that militias would take to the streets and that they would continue to organize. And they've continued to be emboldened by President Trump and his tweets and his call-outs. Why was the governor specifically targeted here? One of the things they say in the criminal complaint is that this woman has too much power. They particularly don't like a Democratic woman who speaks out and has spoken out against Trump. When our leaders meet with, encourage, or fraternize with domestic terrorists, they legitimize their actions, and they are complicit. When they stoke and contribute to hate speech, they are complicit. The protests against Governor Whitmer's COVID public health measures, which brought people to the Capitol, as well as the anti-racist protests that emerged across the summer. And counter-protesters have been starting to arrive en masse to those, including militia groups. So all of that is the context in which these groups began to plot this plan to kidnap and kill the governor. What do you think people on the left get wrong or don't know about these far-right white supremacist terrorist groups? There is a tendency to lump them all together. I make a distinction between white supremacist groups, which are groups that want to dominate racially mixed societies no matter what. White nationalists, however, they want to be white nationalists in what they call a homogenous homeland and to create a white ethnostate. Those distinctions are important because they involve different political visions and different strategies in general social strategies, but also potentially violent strategies to be able to exercise and to fulfill their aims. How should we be thinking about the next few weeks and the run up to this election? I know there are people who are worried about violence erupting. Well, I think those people's fears are well-placed. We're thinking about November 3rd as maybe this kind of terminus to this process. However, if you think of it, the election itself is not necessarily going to be decided in one day. Whoever wins the election, this problem of white power violence and far-right violence is not going away. If Trump wins, it's certainly not going away. And if Biden wins, it's not going away. Alexandra Minna-Stern is a professor at the University of Michigan. She's also the author of Proud Boys and the White Ethnostate. We'll be back in 15 seconds with what's at stake with the next presidential debate. 
Welcome back to Axios Today. Joining me this morning is Hans Nichols, who covers the Biden campaign for Axios. Good morning, Hans. So much back and forth yesterday between President Trump and former Vice President Biden about whether there's going to be a debate. But basically, that's off now. Looks like it's off, but... We know this is part of Donald Trump's negotiating tactics to try to walk away and then come back. The Biden campaign, though, has made other plans. They have an obligation now at ABC News, and they say they're going to be taking questions directly from voters on the night that the second debate was supposed to be. From the Biden campaign's perspective, they're sitting on a lead. The fact that they don't have to debate, just there's one less risk. What motivation does President Trump have to debate, given how things went last week? Turn things around. You do not talk to a Republican in Washington, D.C. that doesn't think he needs to turn things around. Remember, Nyla, he did this in 2016. He was upset with Fox News. He skipped a debate and had a rally. And that worked out for him in 2016. I wonder what you're hearing from the Biden campaign, what the chatter is in Washington about whether the third debate will even happen. That seems like an absolutely open question. I suspect if Donald Trump is way down in the polls, that he will find a way to make his way to the debate stage for the final debate. But it's the Trump administration. Nothing's guaranteed. Hans Nichols covers the Biden campaign for Axios. Thanks, Hans. Have the best weekend, as one of our friends says. I feel like we talk a lot about things that aren't going well during the pandemic, but it turns out sports betting is not one of them. Kendall Baker is Axios' sports editor. Hey, Kendall, so lots of people trying to get into this these days. Yeah, sports betting throughout the pandemic, engagement was higher than many expected. And now with the NFL returning, it's through the roof. Kendall, when we say sports betting is doing pretty well during the pandemic, do we have any stats or how do you know that? I think the best example would be in August, $668 million was wagered on sports in New Jersey, which broke the all-time record for most wagered in a month, which Nevada had previously held November 2019. And again, that's that's during a pandemic. I mean, granted, there were plenty of sports in August, but new record set just two months ago. How are we seeing this play out? So I think right now the story is these different approaches to establishing oneself in the marketplace. And so you have fan duels and DraftKings of the world. They spent hundreds of millions of dollars acquiring daily fantasy sports users. And now they're basically saying, hey, we also have betting now if you're in a state that allows that. You also have casino brands like MGM that are trying to leverage that brand and be a sports betting destination. And then you have the most interesting of all, Penn National acquiring a large stake in Barstool Sports and basically acquiring an audience that they can then try and monetize through sports betting. And Barstool is interesting because for people who don't know about it, the sports and pop culture blog has a huge and very loyal following both in social media and in the podcast space. Yeah, Barstool is definitely a controversial media company, to say the least. They're not really getting away from what they've already been doing anyways. And that's kind of what's interesting here. Like, Barstool's already been creating a lot of sports betting related content. And that's really the promise of sports betting overall is it turns sports fan transactional. So Barstool's already creating content for people watching the game. Now, all of a sudden, they say, you can bet on this game, and for everybody who bets, they're making money. So it's just an interesting combination of a sports betting operator and a media company, and everybody in the space is watching to see how far that can go. Kendall Baker is Axios' sports editor. Before you start the weekend, here's something to think about after this very long week. We have to project a positive future. Those are the words of John Lennon, who would have turned 80 years old today. 
Rolling Stone once named him as one of the greatest songwriters of all time because of an ability to transform his personal experiences into relatable music. There was even an orphanage near where he grew up called Strawberry Field. Lennon's life was cut short. A gunman shot him in the archway of his home near Central Park on December 8, 1980. Now the park has two and a half acres dedicated to his memory. Strawberry fields forever. And it, too, is called Strawberry Fields. Axios Today is brought to you by Axios and Pushkin Industries. Special thanks to Axios co-founder Mike Allen. We're produced by Carol Wu, Kara Schillen, Nuria Marquez-Martinez, and Naomi Shaven. Dan Bobkoff is our executive producer. Sarah Kehlani Gu is our executive editor. Alex Sugiara is our sound engineer. At Pushkin, our executive producers are Leetal Malad and Jacob Weisberg. You can write to us at podcasts at axios.com and find me on Twitter at Nyla Boodoo. Stay safe, have a great weekend, and we'll see you back here on Monday.